Wonderful, wonderful. Well, um, can we have some lights on? Do we uh, see? I want to actually see who's out there that's not running the comrades this morning <laughs> or standing on the road doing some like random, pointless shouting and throwing of things in the air. I, um, I think the body was designed to run about five kilometers at a time. And all those that think they can break that law, well, I'll see you in your 80. <laughs> Aren't you glad we're not under law? <laughs> uh, praise God. We're going to do two things here. I was going to ask the guys taking up the offering if, if you could come. And um, I'll ask you to turn to Romans 8 in your Bibles. Just been uh, for some time believing that as we bring our tithes and offerings, we don't do so under compulsion. We do so cheerfully as those who um, are sharing in the partnership of the gospel. So, so this is our joy we take our seed in our hands this morning, amen, you know the drill by now, representing our time, our effort, our work, our, our tithes, our offerings, what we're bringing to God in partnership with this wonderful gospel as we give. We pray, Lord, that the generosity that flows from this place would warm our hearts as we experience the joy of giving but also, Lord, would become the riverbank of bringing the gospel to other people. So we don't do it as a, just a passing, arbitrary thing, but we do it deliberately, believing that we are partnering with you through our finances into your kingdom. And all God's people said, Amen, amen and Amen. Let's do that. Thank you. We've been looking at Romans chapter 7, chapter 8 over the last few weeks. Uh, I've really been intrigued by, by that whole struggle that Paul had in Romans 7. Don't you find you identify so well with that, the things I want to do and I don't do and I try to do and I can't do and I shouldn't do and I didn't do. And we found this whole struggle of a man who's, who's trying to do something in order to achieve something. And, and, and he's a man either under the law as a Jewish man, or even as a Christian who's living by an external a do and don't list of what it means to uh, perform in his Christian life. So, nothing wrong with his desire to want to do those things, but you keep reading the words, that what I want to do, what I want to do, what I want to do. And then he comes to a place of total rest, as he re- recognizes he's a wretched man, the law shows him that he's not... Uh, able to, to overcome that gravity of, of the sin, sin, and he eventually comes to total rest in the work of Christ, and he finds that place in chapter 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation. It's the most freeing, most liberating thing, whether you're just a religious person that hasn't been born again, or if you are a born again person who's living under all kinds of rules and expectations and an external thing of what you think you should be doing and you find you just fail and fail and fail. When you come to that place of condemnation lifted off you and you realize you are in a new place 
of relationship with God because it goes straight on to say, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And that is the decisive word, being in Christ. It's His obedience, His righteousness, His fulfilling the law, His perfection. I'm in that perfection. I'm in that righteousness. And my whole relationship with God changes. And then in verse 2, it it kind of separates those two operating systems, the old and the new, by saying the, the, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the law of Sin and death. There were two laws operating. In chapter 7, he was operating under the law of sin and death. It's a law that reveals sin and it produces death. But he says, now I have the spirit of life in Christ. When you're born again and regenerated, when you're placed in the finished work of Christ, there's a new work. There's a new power. You're no longer under the the dominion of sin. You're no longer under the the control of of sin anymore. You're now liberated from that. You move into no condemnation. You, you, You realize you live under the smile of heaven uh, God is happy God's uh, wrath and judgment was satisfied on the cross fully which it goes on in the next verse in verse 3 and says for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh you see that in your, in your Bibles in, in, in verse 3 it says there for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh How did God deal with the problem? It carries on and says, God did. Say, God did. This is something God did. God did. By sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man. He condemned sin in sinful man. This is something God did. What did God do? He sent His Son in the flesh to be a sin offering. You see, the difference between chapter 7 and chapter 8 hinges around what Jesus did. And the last few weeks I've been getting up to preach and my opening words are, I'm not here to tell you what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing as a Christian. My job is to tell you who you are. My job is to tell you who you are in Christ. And when we come to understand who we are in Christ, and because of Christ, because of the God who sent His Son, because of condemning sin in sinful nature, we know what we've got to do and what we've not got, not got to do. But we've got to be careful not to slip back into a Romans 7 relationship with God, which is based on, on what, what I think I've got to do to perform in order to receive. But I rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then all I have to do is set my mind on the things that my spirit desires. Goes on and says, I no longer set my mind on what the flesh desires because I'm not controlled by the flesh. The man who's not born again, he's controlled by the flesh. What he tastes, what he sees, what he smells, all, all the memories that are accumulated in the database of the brain that give him a perception of reality. That's his, how he's limited to this earthly realm, to the earthly, what he sees, what he tastes, what he feels, what feels good, what he thinks. And all this is, is, is in the mind. And, and the Bible says we no longer have to set our minds on what the flesh, living in the flesh, but now, because we're born again, we're alive to God. We've been awakened to God. We can live a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And sin shall no longer have dominion over us. Because we're free. This is the the message of Romans 8. That we are liberated. Now as a Christian we can still set our minds on what the flesh desires. But then we reap death. Who wants to do that? 
So the mind is the battlefield. The mind has got to be renewed so that we know what our recreated spirit wants. Because when we set our mind on what the spirit wants, we live free. Because our spirit wants the presence of God. Our spirit wants to see people blessed. Our spirit wants to see the gospel go into the world and save souls. Our spirit, connected with the Holy Spirit, longs for the things that God longs for. But the, 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 the battle is in the mind, and this is where it's got to be renewed. So my job as a preacher is not to come and tell you, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, go yeah, go there, don't. My job is to tell you who you really are. Because when you start finding out who you really are, and you can set your mind, because that's our job, we still got an unrenewed mind, partially, but if we learn to set our mind on what our spirit desires, we move into the freedom. Uh, Paul goes on in that chapter to talk, talk about more than conquerors, living the victorious life. Nothing shall separate us from His love. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of Romans 7 Christianity. And it all hinges around one statement. And this is what I want to speak into a little bit this morning. God sent His Son in the flesh to be a sin offering. And in order to look at the subject, we've got to speak about the blood of Jesus. We've got to speak about the blood of Jesus. When that spear was pushed up into his side on the cross when they knew he was already been dead for a couple of hours. The Bible says blood and water came out. And I read an article once that explained that, 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 that there's a congealing of the blood and there's a sack underneath the heart where, where the, the mucus sits. And when the blood is congealed and you, and you pierce through that, the liquid comes out followed by this congealed, the blood starts coming. Which is a sure indication that Jesus hadn't just fainted on the cross. He was dead. And the, the picture of blood is carried from Genesis to Revelations. There had to be shedding of blood. In Genesis that blood was shed for the first time we read. The first mention of shed blood was when God made a covering. An, an animal sacrifice of a bloody animal skin to Adam after he fell. And right through the Old Testament the blood sacrifice pointed towards the culmination of the covenant, which was Christ. And we see in the book of Revelations, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the earth. By His own blood, He has purchased people from every nation. I think um, Mel Gibson, in the Passion, tried to go a long way to express a lot about the blood. Some people found it a bit gory. Some people said He might have overdone the blood thing a bit. And, and maybe He did push it to an extreme. But you always push a thing to an extreme to make a point. And the point had to be made that it was a bloody sacrifice. It was blood. There was blood. And in some theological circles they said, tone down with the blood story. That's a bit archaic. It's a primitive way of expressing death. Just talk about the death of Jesus. Don't talk about, about blood. Blood was an archaic expression. My friend, if you, don't take, if you take blood out of the Bible, you've got to tear a whole lot of the Bible out. Because the Bible speaks about blood. blood, blood. The life is in the blood, the Bible says. Life is in the blood. It reminds me of, of those the, the twin boys, as toddlers, twin boys who, who, the, who had a rare blood type and the one brother had an accident and, and, 
urgently needed a blood transfusion and they could only find his brother and they brought him into the, into the operating theater, lay him on a table and they were taking blood out of his arm to fill up those sacks and while the other son had to receive blood. And after an hour or so, the little boy who'd come to give his blood for his brother said to the doctor, how long before I die? And he thought that dad brought him there to take all his blood out to give it to his brother. There's something about blood that you know your life depends on. There's something about blood that we shouldn't be embarrassed about when we speak about it. Because the Bible's full of it. Look with me here. I'm going to speak a little bit about this, the blood of the new covenant. In Hebrews, there's a scripture in chapter 9 and verse 22 that says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, we've only got two choices, my friend. Number one, we accept as fact the completed, unconditional forgiveness that God purchased through the blood of His Son, or else we try and create a system of our own to feel better about our sins. So people feel bad about their sins, so they go and try to do good works. Because, you know, surely God ticks up your bad and your good, and if they kind of balance out, then God's happy. That's a man-made way. It's a religion, religious way. If I sin, if I do something bad and I do something good, or I do a little formula, or I do a little penance, or I go to the priest, or I do my little confession, and unfortunately for a thousand years, the Christian brain was so engraved and indoctrinated with that concept that it lingers on and on and on. But we either receive it as a completed, finished thing, or we have to find a way. Even if it's a groveling mentality. Great men of God who have gone and climbed up on a mountain in the freezing cold snow, as we read of Martin Luther a few weeks ago, lay out in the snow, somehow to balance the books. You see, when I sin, well, let me, let me say this, as a, as a young Christian, I was very good at giving my life to the Lord. I did it a hundred times. It just felt so good the first time I did it. I went up and I just got smacked by the Holy Spirit. I cried. It was not in Toronto for an hour or two. It was so great. And hey, the next Sunday, they made the altar call. I ran up again to give my life to Jesus. And the next Sunday. And the next Sunday. But one day I found out that it had been done and I didn't have to keep repeating it. Okay? So I want to just illustrate something very basically, but I, I think in illustration. So you would help me if, if you could, could bear with me. Don't worry, I'm not going to do all the regeneration, sanctification thing this morning. Do it tonight, okay? So I know you'll be here tonight. I just want to, if you can bear with me, a picture of the cross and, and Jesus' complete work. And let's say these are all my sins I would ever commit in my life on the when I was three years old, or 21 years old, or 15 years old, or whatever. I, I committed all these sins over my, my life. Then I came to Christ. I had a revelation of, of what He did for me. Uh, how many of these were forgiven? When they, okay, so we got that one, right? So all, all my sin was forgiven. Every single one of them was forgiven over there. And I came free. I, I, I thank God for the blood of the new covenant. I thank God for the finished work of the cross. And then on the 30th of May, 2010, just possibly, uh, a sin. Bless you. That's confirmation. No, no, it's not. They say, well, it wasn't a deliberate sin. Well, who doesn't know what they're doing is wrong at the time? Even if you're kicking the dog, you know it's pretty not the right thing to do. You know? So, so you go out and you, 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 you 
get change at the supermarket, you put in your pocket, you go off, you know it was too much, you get home, you feel so terrible about it. And, and, and now, now what's happened? I've, I've sinned, okay? So, so, so I've got, I've, I've sinned, alright, so yeah, yeah, I've sinned. So now, yeah, we are on the, the 18th of May, or t- 18th of June, still coming, because Jesus died for all my sins, but now I've sinned, can I still sin as a Christian? Yeah, I can sin, of course I can sin, I just sin, can you see it? Now I've got this, 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 this was my picture, okay, for so many years as a Christian, that come to the end of the day, I would make my short list of sin, amen. I'd short list my sin, so... Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Please, this one and that one, that one, and then I would take my sin. I'd feel better again, amen. Because now it's gone. My sin's gone. I've done my confessional. I've done my little. I've, I've now. And I was taught as a young Christian that you got to write a list because the Holy Spirit will show you every single sin you commit, and as you confess them, you keep a short account on these sins, so that. If the rapture happened, you wouldn't be in trouble. Because, let's be honest, if the rapture happens and I've got the sin on me, can I stand in the presence of a holy God with a sin? Can I stand? So, so even as a young Christian, I wasn't stupid. I was dumb, but I wasn't stupid, okay? So I said to a guy once, I said, but what if I forget one little sin? It's like hidden away, yeah. I didn't see it, and, it's, and I think I'm alright. What about that sin? God can see that sin. And God, I, mean, I can't stand before a holy God with that sin. And I remember the answer was, no, but the grace of God will cover that. I mean, how dumb can you get and still breathe? Then why doesn't it just cover all of it? But anyway, so anyway, so I would make a short account of sin and get rid of it, okay? And that was my mentality. Then I could carry on in fellowship with God, no motor car accidents, no wrath, no judgment. The only problem with this was, now I know as a Christian I can still sin. And when I said, what should I do? There's a remorse that comes because I know because it's not like you to want to sin anymore. The new man, the new the new creation you are, doesn't want to sin anymore. The unrenewed mind, you still got the flesh, you still got temptation, you still got Satan and demons. So, so, so sin is, is a possibility, but but the new, the real person you are, the, the one we're talking about, doesn't want to go out and deliberately sin. But he knows when there's been sin and he feels bad about it, remorseful, takes responsibility for it. But, but when is it removed? When I pray my prayer or my, my penance or my go to confessional or, or was it already, how many, what sins were forgiven on the cross? So, so even, you mean even that sin next year that you might commit was already forgiven there? Wow, that changes the way we think about it. Well, let's go and have a look at what the Bible says. If I can get that noise out of my head, I'll feel a lot better. Um, there's a there's a noise here. You can't hear it. It's, it's hectic. Okay, let's go to Hebrews nine and verse twenty five, please. Talking about Jesus, yeah. We're going to see how the Son of God finished His work, is risen and seated in heavenly places, and our only response to that, to the finished work that we refer over here as the finished work of the cross. Our only response to that is to have faith. Romans 7 man is trying to do, 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 do. Knows he falls short, falls short, falls short. The Romans 8 man reckons it an accomplished thing. Here we go. Nor did Jesus, 
enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest entered the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all. Say for all. Once for all. At the culmination of the ages to do away with sin. Say do away with sin. How many, how many sins? By the sacrifice of himself. And now look in 7 verse 27. Unlike the other high priests, Christ does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Now take how, how ridiculous this argument is. Because if all my sins got forgiven on my conversion day, and I was totally washed and clean, but the next time I sin, I have something that I've got to get rid of, that means the only way I could get rid of this is to have another sacrifice, because it's in the future. Because if a past sacrifice didn't take care of my future sins, is that logic? I'd have to have another sacrifice. So that's what they did in the Old Covenant. The, the businessman Jew who went up once a year to Passover, he brought his sheep, he brought his goat, whatever they brought, it was killed, the blood was shed, and oh, he lived for another year. But in that year he accumulated more sins, and now he needed another sacrifice. But the covenant we have is not like that. Jesus isn't going to be Sacrificed again and again and again and again. That's why this is called a better covenant. Now, when you go to the book of Hebrews, this is probably the most powerful book about the subject because he's writing to his fellow Jews to abandon their dead works of temple stuff. He's telling them it's Jesus plus nothing. He's pointing out, as you read through Hebrews, that this old covenant was a shadow of this, which is... the the final absolute Jesus once for all, and he writes to his fellow believers and says, please, you can't keep on living with sin consciousness expecting to be forgiven. You have to put your faith in what Christ did once and for all. So, my first point. <laughs> you wondered when I was going to get there. Yeah, 15 minutes and going. The writer of Hebrews pleads with his fellow Jews to abandon dead works he begs them to hang on to Jesus plus nothing. Everything else was a shadow. When you drive past McDonald's and you drive through the shadow that it's cast by the sun, you don't stop there and celebrate. You wait till you drive into McDonald's, okay? He says, guys, don't stop. This is a better covenant you got now. That was only a shadow. It would be insulting if Jewish believers were going to go back and participate in temple sacrifices. It would be disgracing as a Christian because it, it, it undermines the finished work of the cross, looking for something else. An attitude is a bit like, yes, I believe I've been forgiven, but let me just, in case. So I believe all my sins have been forgiven, but, but, but because I did this very bad thing the other day, until I get forgiven of this, I, I feel like, you, you know, my relationship with God, my fellowship with God, my intimacy with Him is thwarted. Now, now I've got to, as a New Testament believer, I've got to, Change my, I have to renew my mind about this. Now, if a Christian is living like this, and they're born again, they're going to heaven. It's not a bad thing. It's like a Christian who believes that when they get sick, God is punishing them uh, and teaching them through sickness. Do you think they're going to go to hell for that? Are they going to lose their salvation? 
No, they believe the sickness is, is God teaching them something. It's just they've got to have their minds renewed at some stage of their life. They have to have their minds renewed about... Now, now it's the same thing. I felt the Lord telling me this morning, some people when they hear this, it's as radical for them as for some people when they heard that sickness wasn't God's teaching them, but the devil attacking them. When we realize that I have to renew my mind, because if I, if I live with this kind of Christianity, that the next sin I commit is on me until I've done a little confessional to get rid of it, it's not a bad thing, it's not a, a wrong thing, but I'm living below my privileges as a Christian. In the same way, someone who keeps on thinking sickness is a work of God in their life to teach them a, something is going to live below their privileges and you've got to bring a renewing of the mind so they find out the truth about themselves, that they are 100% righteous all the time, every day, regardless of the future, by their faith in the better covenant. And now that's what Christ came to do when he became a sin offering that causes us to live in a place of no condemnation. In the early church, people were encouraging them to, yes, believe in this, but also do this church, this, the, the temple sacrifices. And if the writer of Hebrews is speaking to us today, would he find us with some of this mentality in our minds? Or are we renewing our minds to believe that when the Bible says Jesus finished the work there, that I now, my fellowship, is uninterrupted and unaffected, when I do something stupid, and I know it's stupid, because I set my mind on what the flesh wanted, and not on what my true me wants, because you never came to church last night, and I couldn't tell you who you really are. Just kidding. You're not discovering who you really are, and you're hanging on by setting your mind on what the flesh wants. You fall into temptation. You sin. I have to tell you that sin has already been paid for, and you're still in fellowship with God, but you're saying, God, this is destructive behavior. It's going to mess up my family. It's going to trash my life. I could die prematurely. I don't want to live like this. But that sin is not there. It's been forgiven. And you say, oh, this is just semantics. Well, it's a big deal, actually. Because it's a renewing of the mind. It's like every night I get into bed with Janet, I say, oh, sweetheart, you know, I love you so much. I know we're married, but will you marry me, Please. But what do you mean, will I marry? No, 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 I know we're married, but it just helps me in our fellowship if I ask you and I hear you say, I do. It just makes me feel good about myself. So, so I'm going to come to you every night just before we fall off to sleep. I'll say, oh, sweetie, can we get married again? I mean, after a while, she's going to want to send me somewhere for some help where they wear those jackets, you know. Now, the writer of Hebrews understood the same principle. They, they remembered there was a ceremony. They remembered there was a vow. A covenant vow where God said, I will remember their sins no more. And now they were watching believers coming back every day. Oh, you know, I'm just, I'm just such a bad sinner. Oh, please, please, you know, can, can you just spare me one more drop of blood? So I, oh, now I'm free. Oh, thank goodness, thank you. And you fail, succeed. Fail, succeed. I, I can't live like a Roman 7 Christian anymore. It was tiring. It was exhausting. It was discouraging. I'm living in a place of no condemnation and I'm loving it. 
on the basis of the finished work of Him who became a sin offering. And now I'm learning to set my mind on what the real me desires. And I want you to set your mind on what the real you desires. Because the real you is 100% righteous, 100% holy, 100% no judgment, 100% no wrath. And if you know the real you, you'll want to do those things. That's what Romans 8 is all about. Christ so thoroughly obliterated our deserved punishment for sin that God will never refer to our sin again. How can we fear judgment when He's already been judged for us? How can we fear uh, punishment if He's promised to never remember our sins anymore? Look at this in the, in the NEV, uh, RSV standard version and the NASB version brings out a very interesting twist on this uh, Hebrews 9 verse 28 it'll come up you can read it it says Christ also having been offered once 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 to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him wow if we miss this we're missing the most vital ingredient to renewing our minds. If we still live with this mentality of I still carry my sin until I, I have it confessed or you know, do penance or do restitution or if I somehow pay back, if I live with that, I'm living below my rights as a Christian as if I believed that sickness is from God to teach me. Until I come to a place where I recognize Jesus treated sin and sickness the same way on the cross when he died. Jesus' death satisfies God forever. Second point. In the book of Hebrews, it contrasts the constant standing and ongoing religious performance of the old priest with the seated high priest who will never again offer another sin for my life and my sins. Hebrews 10 verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This truth, my friend, will help us see how righteous we are and pure and clean and forgiven. When there's nothing left for Jesus to do about our sins. There's nothing left that we can do about our sins. The Bible says He sat down. What was sitting down a picture of? Because in the, in the temple there was, a, there was no chair. There was no seating place for the high priest when he went in. No chairs mentioned. Yes, there's a table. Yes, there's uh, uh, candles. Yes, there's incense. Yes, there's all the other paraphernalia. But there was no chair. Why? Because he wasn't allowed to sit down. Because he had to come back and go and come back and go and back. Didn't know if he was coming or going. Like people who wear that little collar, you know. It's, it's their shirt the wrong way around. They don't know if they're coming or going. Just joking. So the, the, the priest doesn't, he doesn't, didn't know if he's coming or going. Coming or going. Nowhere to sit. But it says when Jesus once for all sins, past, present and future, sin issue dealt with in that moment of time, something happened. Jesus sat down. He showed there's nothing more He can do. It's been done. And the Bible says in Ephesians that we are seated 
in Him. I mean, that is glorious. That is liberating. That is free. We are seated in Him. And it's interesting that when it speaks about this forgiveness, most passages use the past tense. Look, Colossians 2 verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. All our sins. All our sins. Having cancelled the written code, yeah, we all know what that is, with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Hebrews 10 verse 17. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Thank you, Lord. Where this sacrifice is made, there's no longer any sin. There's no sacrifice. There's no ritual. There's no anything. And I love 1 John chapter, chapter 1 where it talks about if, if we're in fellowship with Christ, His blood keeps us clean from all sin. He writes to us that we, don't, we won't continue in sin. But, if, but, but, but if, we, if we do stumble and fall, we have Jesus who's seated next to the right-hand side of God. He's also got a word in 1 John for people. There was a group of them. Um, they had a philosophy that, that sin was separate to mankind and man was pure and holy from birth till death. And he said, no, no, you first got to acknowledge that we're all sinners. The first three chapters of Romans says, we have all sinned. Acknowledge. Look around you. Open your eyes. If you just need to be convinced about that, read the newspaper. Watch the news. Go to a rugby game. I, I, mean, I mean, sin, if we say there's no sin, we're making God out to be a liar. So, so come into agreement with God. The word there, confess, means to agree. It's the same word, agreement. Come into agreement with God that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And when you do that, you can put your faith in the finished work of the cross, receive total forgiveness, and now you live the rest of your days under the covering of the blood. That, my friend, is what it means to plead the blood of Jesus. Pleading the blood of Jesus is not like, well, get in my car. I plead the blood. I plead the blood. No accidents today. You know, my dog. I plead the blood of my dog. I plead my dog, my, the blood. What does that mean? Have you heard that? That's an old saying. Who's never heard of that saying, pleading the blood? Oh, not too many. Have you an old bunch, eh? Been around for a while. Pleading the blood just means I live in the security that the blood has finished the work. It was a messy thing what happened on the cross and that blood today is, keeps my fellowship open with God because, because, I'm, because I'm under that blood. That blood speaks over my life. In the old covenant, it atoned. In other words, it covered. Under the new covenant, what does it do? It removes. It takes away. Not just covered. Oh, it's just a positional thing, you know, poofy, naughty, ugly, dirty me, just covered by the blood of Jesus. No, that's atonement. New covenant is, that's gone. The re- I want to tell you, the real you has no sin in you. And the more you hear the truth of the gospel, the more your mind is renewed to set your mind on what your spirit wants. We had it the wrong way around. We were trying to be good Roman seven Pharisees. And we found out there's a better way. Amen. Because God's gentle with us and loves us and He's kind and there's no condemnation. Thank you, Lord. Our righteousness with God is grounded on objective, solid reality. The blood of Jesus. The gift may be free, but it was not cheap. This is a word for this morning that I'm preaching. Believers who are living afraid of God's wrath and God's anger, the blood takes care of that. Believers 
who are trying to earn God's favor, trying to earn God's blessing in their life. Let me tell you, the blood has taken care of that. This is a message for people living under guilt and shame in their lives. I want to tell you, the blood has taken care of that. Every blessing that's yours from the Word of God is found on a basis. It's not just a subjective thing. It's an objective thing. Blood was shed. Christians living with a sense of one day I'm going to have to face judgment for this thing. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Why would Jesus have had to take your punishment and then you've also got to take your punishment? Why would Jesus have had to take your, 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 your judgment and now you've also got to take judgment? But all of that, my friend, isn't just based on some subjective, I hope so, you know, I heard the gospel, I went to church. It's based on blood. Blood was shed. Just in conclusion, I am... Um, Terry Hunter, are you here this morning? You're here. Sent me an article that, you know, the day before that, I'd actually put it in my notes, that exact article. And I've never ever heard anyone else ever use it. I heard it as a young Christian, and Terry sent word for word exactly through the email the other day. The day after, I, I, it was amazing. It's, it's about the, uh, a revivalist in, in Canada who, who was traveling around doing uh, a revival ministry, and during one of the, the crusades, a a young prostitute who was sitting in the church meeting felt convicted by the Holy Spirit and came to the front, got gloriously saved. And uh, they all celebrated it and the evangelist moved on. And this young girl got involved in the life of the church, wonderfully saved. She believed Jesus had completely changed her life. And, uh, and she started attending the, the, the meetings and she, she met the pastor's son. And a, a friendship started between them. And the next minute he popped the question to her to get married. And um, you'd think everybody would be overjoyed and ecstatic about it. But little whispering started. Is it, is it right? Everyone knows who this woman used to be in. It's a small town. Everyone knows each other's business. We know her kind of life. It's great that she's a Christian now, but it's not fitting. You know? It's not fitting that the pastor's son is, like we heard, he's getting engaged to her. So, so, so they called this sit-down meeting, a church meeting. And they got the church together and opened a, 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 a general open meeting. And, and they invited every gossip monger in town and everyone who was there to come and hear what's going on. And a few people were given the, 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 the mark, came up and it's, it's just not right. We, we just don't feel it's good for the image of this church. It's not, it's, we, we don't know, you know, if she ever had a relapse. You, you know, we, we just got, we don't know if it's a good thing for, and they spoke this way and that way, and some people were more positive, and some people were more negative. And eventually, the young boy, the pastor's son, got up, and he walked to the front of the church, and he took the microphone, and he said, this morning is not about my fiancé, soon-to-be wife, this morning is not about judging her situation. This morning is about judging the blood of Jesus. Because if the blood of Jesus hasn't made every one of us completely and totally new, once and for all, he put the mark down and he went and sat and there was silence. But like when Jesus wrote in the sand, eh? from the oldest to the youngest, they walked away. That same crowd who would shout, crucify him, 
crucify him. That same crowd that would eventually take a spear and stick it up under his ribcage and pierce his heart. But my friend, Jesus didn't die of a broken heart. He didn't die of a pierced heart. He died as a sin sacrifice. And his blood speaks louder than your life, your past, your present, or your future. Can we stand up this morning? And Lord, as we've come around the table, participated, I want to say to you this morning, just as every head is bowed, in this moment, I want to say to you that Maybe you're visiting here. Maybe you've been to church for a while. Maybe you even prayed a prayer at some stage in your life. But you've never known the miracle of the new birth through the finished work of the blood of Jesus. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you to just pray in your heart. If you're standing here this morning saying, I want to know this forgiveness. I want to know the power of the blood like you spoke about it today. I want you to pray this prayer after me, just in your heart, quietly. No, not quietly. We're going to pray together, aloud. All of us. Father God, thank you for the blood of Jesus. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of the blood. The blood brought the judgment and it satisfied the judgment. It satisfied the judgment in the heavenly courts of the universe. And it says, it is finished. This morning I put my faith, my past sins, my present sin, my future sins, under the blood of Jesus. And I want to specifically pray for those folk who stand here and saying, that's, that's me. I want you, just in your heart now, to say, Jesus Christ... I believe that you were crucified, buried, and resurrected in my place. You are seated next to the Father's right hand. I come to you. If you prayed that this morning and you meant it with all your heart, I want to pray a prayer of agreement where you're standing now. I just want you to look up and make eye contact with me. Wherever you are, just look up. Everyone else just praying. Everyone else just just giving this moment to God. Just look up wherever you are. Just make eye contact with me because in a moment I want to just look in your direction and I want to just pray a prayer of agreement with you. Anybody right here. If you're looking at me now, just raise your hand high enough so I know who I'm praying for. Anybody here? Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Anybody in this section here? Thank you, ma'am. Anybody else here? Anybody in this section of the church? If you're looking now, just... So I can see who I'm praying for. Just raise your hand. Anybody here? Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Anybody else on the side of the church? If you're looking at my direction, just raise your hand. Church, let's... Father, we thank you for every person here this morning who said, Jesus, your blood, nothing more and nothing less. Jesus alone. Jesus' sacrifice alone this morning. I put my faith in the blood of Jesus. We thank you for these dear folk. We thank you, Lord, and we pray now for a, an assurance 
that will come upon them. A filling of your Holy Spirit into those cavities of their life. Because your word says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. And I pray now that the Holy Spirit will just come upon these people and fill them, that their dead spirit that has been dead to God would be brought to life, would spring into life, that new life in them would be uncontaminated by uh, 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 religion and past understanding, but that new spirit in them would know beyond a shadow of doubt today that they are in fellowship with you. We ask that in Jesus' name. And then, Lord, for all of us, and ourselves included, we say, Lord, help us to walk in the reality of this. Cause our minds to be renewed, supple, and teachable enough to walk into this truth. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Amen. Praise God.